0: So we we'll say, I verse. The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma. Homage to the Sangha. So we just had this beautiful ceremony, joyful, very, very nice. And we think of Vaisak generally as a celebration of the birth of the Buddha and his enlightenment. But not everybody knows that it also commemorates his death, his parinirvana. And you think, well, on this beautiful, joyful day when we're offering incense and bathing the body of the Buddha and flowers and Flags and so forth. Why commemorate the Buddha's death on this joyful day? Because the Buddha was a human being. He was not beyond birth and death. Old age, sickness, and death, he had them all just like the rest of us. He was a remarkable human being, but he was still a human being. He was not immortal. He'd get sick. He'd get in pain when he was old. And when he was 80, he died. And it's just the way things are, and it's actually fine. We wouldn't want to have the poor old Buddha lasting up till now. It would have been pretty tough for him. Death is part of life. You can't have one without the other. You know, if you're born, eventually you're going to die. Nice cheerful thought. However, it's actually fine. Everything arises, lasts for a while, changes and ages, and then passes away. It's perfectly fine. All beings, they're born, they live for a while, they get old if they're lucky. Sometimes they just live a very short while, and then eventually they will die. Well, as many of us know, our venerable old monk, Reverend Master Jisho, died the other day, peacefully, after a long decline. And I just wanted to mention it. He was the oldest monk in our order in terms of ordination. He was ordained in 1971. He came here very shortly after Reverend Master G, came, the, lo- the longest monk in our order. And the other day, he just peacefully passed away. He had a long and good life, and he helped a great many people. So we're really sad to lose our dear old monk, but it's also a relief for him and for us. We wouldn't want him to be stuck in this aged body, in painful body, any longer. He had, you know, he broke his pelvis and he broke his hip and he was in pain, so he was at peace clearly at peace, but it was painful, it was painful everybody has to die eventually it's just the way it is everything changes all the time nothing is fixed forever, nothing is perfect, we have this beautiful Vesak day, really joyful but if you don't have Vesak every day it would, and if you did, we would get tired of it after a bit it's nice to have it once a year you know, because it's a Rare thing, And to have so many of us after the COVID is even more joyful because it's been a long time since we've, people have felt more comfortable going out and being with each other. And if we all get sick and die, well, we will. But I do not think we will. I think we'll be fine. <laughs> There's always birth and death, light and darkness, health and sickness. It's just the way it is. And it has to be that way because if you didn't have darkness... Light wouldn't mean anything. It would just be light all the time, and you wouldn't appreciate it as it is. But then morning comes, light comes up, you know. If you didn't have sickness, we wouldn't be grateful for good health. Or well, we all know when you've been ill, and then we get better, we think, "Oh, I feel better. I can eat now, you know." And we don't take it for granted in quite the way we' used to. The eight winds: gain and loss fame and disgrace, praise and blame, joy and sorrow. They're always with us. I'm always (laughs) talking about them because they're always blowing. Those eight winds when you think about it. Gain and loss, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, joy and sorrow. They keep coming up. And we can resist them or we can accept them. Well, this was true for the Buddha as well. He was not beyond all these eight winds. His life was not easy, even after his enlightenment, maybe especially after his enlightenment. It wasn't just blissful, you know. In fact, it, when he was a young prince, it can't have been easy, raised in comparative luxury, which to us would probably seem fairly plain. But his father tried to keep him from knowing about old age, sickness, and death. You know, if it, <laughs> the story says if a flower died, it would be nipped off quickly before he could see it. You know, so he wouldn't have things died. But he had this. Must have had this feeling: there's something missing here. There must be more to life than just this niceness all the time, and these young people and everything being happy and good. You know, he had questions, and we all know that. Many of us know that feeling of there must be more to life than this. What am I missing here? So he goes out into the city and sees the four sights of an old person, a sick person, a dead person, and then someone who has renounced the world, a wandering ascetic, which they had lots of them in India at that time. Most of us know this story. Well, he was really shaken by those first three, the old person, the sick person, and the dead person, because he had no idea about old age, sickness, and death. It's completely new to him. And he asked his charioteer, what's wrong with that person? Oh, he's old. That person? Oh, he's ill, everybody gets sick sometimes that person, oh he's dead everybody dies whoa, you know and then he saw the person who left home and was looking for answers and he thought ah, that's what I've got to do I've got to find the answer to this why is it like this, why is there suffering why is there old age, sickness and death why is it inevitable for all of us it must have been awfully hard to make that decision to leave home his wife and his new baby son and to go and wander it sounds like he just did it in you know, a short time but it might have been months, he might have agonized for months about what he needed to do, but he did it and as most of us know, he then spent six years, Siddhartha Hezhywan was six years in various extreme ascetic practices and almost killed himself actually but he never gave up He never gave up searching for the truth. And when he finally stopped being an ascetic, because it wasn't working, and he ate something, ate some food, a bowl of rice that a young woman had given him. And he found a suitable tree and resolved he was not going to move from underneath this tree until he found his answer, what he was looking for. And it's said that that night he went through all kinds of stuff, doubt, fear, despair, desire, thinking about his wife, pride, all these things in spades coming up, you know. And he sat still through all of it. And then finally, as we know, he realized enlightenment in the early morning, seeing the morning star, ah, just let it all go so clearly. And that's part of our celebration today, this enlightenment, liberation from all that stuff. It doesn't mean it all goes away. It doesn't mean you don't have sickness and old age and so forth, but it means you learn to go beyond them, to see through all that, to transcend the opposites of, you know, light and dark, gain and loss, and all that. Well, all of this was really hard, you know, the whole thing, learning, you know, resolving to leave home, going through all those six years of horrible practices, <laughs> and um, and then. Not giving up, but going through all that stuff. And if it had been easy, it wouldn't have been such a wonderful thing. India was full of people trying to do what he did, trying to find the truth, trying to realize enlightenment. It's a very deeply religious country. And back then, lots of people were doing that, wandering ascetics. And people would respect that, give them alms, and um, take care of them. And he was the first one to succeed in this. It would seem. Sometimes people would find truth, but they wouldn't teach. He succeeded in realizing the truth, and he taught it to others. That's why we know about him. But you know, lots of people must have died trying. You know, lots of people must have been ascetic to the point of death and not had the, not backed off, and maybe it isn't working. Then he begins to teach, and from the stories, it sounds as though. he'd he'd say something and people would immediately become enlightened, you know, instantly. You'd think, oh. But actually we don't know how long they might have spent practicing the way or practicing for years before that. Some of them had been training for many years in other traditions. They hear the Buddha and something just clicks. Ah, that's what I've been looking for, you know. We don't know what they'd been through until then. It's not like they just, you know, wander out of the house, come to the Buddha and boing, that's it. I think there was many years of practice before that. But it makes you wonder, what it would it be like if enlightenment came easy to all of us? Well, maybe the world would be a you know, better place. We wouldn't be slaughtering each other and doing all that. But would we bother? Would we bother to meditate and train ourselves if it was that easy? Or would we just think, oh, another self-help thing, you know, and pass it by? You don't know. Sometimes people are really good at meditation. They take to it really well. It seems like I make all kinds of progress. And then they kind of go, "Me? I'll go and do something else. You think? And those of us who find it harder may value it more. What progress we make, our moments of stillness, our moments of insight, even a tiny bit of insight, we really appreciate because it doesn't come easily. So difficulties could actually be really helpful. We seem to need difficulties to help us to learn and grow. It just seems to be the way it is. And when we look back on a hard time in our life, usually we can see what we learn from it, although it might have been painful, very painful sometimes. But if we were happy all the time, we wouldn't learn and grow like that. We wouldn't learn compassion for people who are suffering, who are not happy, because we wouldn't know what that was like. We wouldn't have any idea. Compassion comes when you've had a bit of suffering, a hard time. You know what it's like when somebody is ill with an illness you've just had, and you think, "Oh, you poor thing! I know what that's like." You know. And when we've been through something really hard, we're grateful for what we still do have, or what we've regained—better health, better circumstances. We're grateful, you know, for things that we might have taken for granted before so difficulties can be really helpful they are helpful actually you wouldn't want to have no difficulties at all life would be pretty bland if if everything was just smooth sailing and we know it's not everybody has difficulties or the Buddha had plenty of difficulties even after his enlightenment maybe especially then life wasn't all blissful peace oh here I am I'm the Buddha now I'm enlightened I've got it together I'll just teach people and they'll be fine and everything's not at all he had horrible trouble sometimes. Well, he said that he spent after his enlightenment, he spent seven weeks enjoying the bliss of enlightenment, and then formulating his teaching. Then after that, he went to work. You know. Well, he was tempted not to try to teach people because he thought it might be too hard for people to understand, too subtle. But then he said, one of the gods said, "Please teach people. They need it. Some people will understand." So he did. And there's Mara. Mara appears now and then throughout the Buddha's life in the scriptures, especially after his enlightenment. And pe- sometimes people see him as an actual being who would try to um, undermine the Buddha. Sometimes people see him actually as a benevolent being, trying to shake him so that he would you know, strengthen his resolve, actually. And you can also see him as thoughts and doubts and fears that would arise in his mind. And I tend to think him more that way, the things that come up in the mind. He was not immune to this, to having, you know, problems and doubts. He was a human being like the rest of us. He wasn't just, you know, fully perfected enlightenment, no more troubles. Things would happen, or he'd have thoughts. Should I be doing this? Is that a mistake? No. Mara keeps turning up. When, when he's an ascetic, Siddhartha, he almost dies of hunger. He thinks, Mara comes and says, Well, it's too hard. You're about to die. Stop this fasting and live your life. Have a bit of fun, you know. Well, maybe the Buddha would think that occasionally. He'd be just desperate and thinking, This isn't working. Am I just going to die uselessly, you know? And then when Siddhartha finally gives up his ascetic life and decides to have something to eat, he has this bowl of rice porridge. And then he has Mara saying, Well, you've given up your pure ascetic life. You're not pure any longer. So you can't win for losing, you know. And these thoughts would have arisen in his mind, actually. He'd have something to eat and he'd think, did I make a mistake there? Am I, you know, given up, giving up in some way? You know, you'd think of that if you were a thoughtful person. You wouldn't just assume, I'm right about everything. And then after his enlightenment, you know, there's Mara again. Well, you can't let go of your attachments. Clearly you're attached to something. Or, why didn't you have any friends? Nobody loves you. What's wrong with you? Or, well, just keep this enlightenment to yourself. Don't bother with other people. Just enjoy it for yourself, you know. Or, why don't you be a nice, good, and just king? Look how much good you could do if you're a king. Much better than just being a, you know, wandering monk. Who's going to listen to you? (laughs) Well, after over and over again he comes, you know. But you think the Buddha would sort of think, you know, would it be better actually just to go back to my home and be the next king and, you know, not... Fulfill my family's expectations. Maybe I do good. They think no, that's not what I'm going to do. No. And then Devadatta injures the Buddha, hurts him, and the Buddha's lying down. And the Mara says, "Why are you lying down? Are you getting lazy?" You know. <laughs> and each time the Buddha recognizes this, recognizes Mara, he recognizes this thought. No, that's not right. I know you, Mara. He says, I know you, Mara. I know that's just doubt. I know that's just fear or just, you know, some problem. I don't have to buy that. And he lets it go. And Mara vanishes at once. Well, all these appearances of Mara or doubt or fear or whatever, it would actually have helped the Buddha. He could see what was arising in his mind, recognize it, and let it go. Not just ignoring stuff and saying, Oh, everything's fine, everything's fine, but to see, oh, am I making a mistake here? You know? Am I actually giving in to weakness and laziness? You know? Do I still have attachments? Would it be better to be a good king? Am I just being a fool just by, you know doing the practice and trying to teach people what I know? And he no, no, that's not true and it would vanish at once. We need to see our doubts and our weaknesses, just the same. We need to see where we're having a doubt or a fear or a... We have all this stuff come up in our mind. And to recognize them for what they are and not judge them. Easy to say, hard to do. Then we can let them go. Oh, I'm just afraid. Oh, I'm just, you know, having doubts about my fear. Well, maybe I should do that or not do that. I should consider, you know and then think, no, this is what I need to do, and let go of that doubt, or whatever it is. Or maybe say, right, I shouldn't be doing this. It's a mistake. You won't do that. To consider, to reflect, not just to kind of assume you know what you're doing, (laughs) because most of the time you don't, but to allow those thoughts to arise, to recognize them, and then to let them go. To do what we need to do, but to let it go. There's nothing wrong with having fears, doubts, problems, and all that. We're human, you know. And the Buddha actually made some mistakes. We're human, we're not perfect. And he made some mistakes too, but he would recognize them and correct them. You don't hear about him going around feeling terrible. He probably felt pretty bad when 500 people committed suicide because he'd extol the joys of nirvana, he comes back and half the monks are gone. He says, where is everybody? Oh, they all committed suicide. You said how wonderful nirvana was, so they all decided to go right for it. You know, (laughs) you can imagine he wouldn't feel too good after that, but he learned, you know. He never lost sight of his purpose. He remained steadfast in faith, true to that, helping people with deep compassion throughout everything that came his way, he was kind, he practiced kindness, and he did, his, he did his best to help people. And he had a lot of problems with people. Some of his monks were unruly. They wouldn't keep to the rules or the precepts. They had to make new rules, you know. Or they'd do really dumb things. Oh my God, I couldn't believe they did that, you know. But um, then he'd have to deal with it, have to deal with the messes they made. They'd upset people, they'd make mistakes, and so forth. Sometimes with the best of intentions, sometimes just trying to, well, there isn't a rule about this, so I'll do this, although clearly it was not wise. He'd have to deal with all those things. Leaders of other sects would try to damage him. I'd either be jealous because he was doing well, you know, people were coming to him. So leaders of other sects would try to disparage him, denigrate him, have him accused of misconduct, you know. But he wouldn't retaliate and he wouldn't defend himself. He'd say, don't worry, it'll die down, and it would. Devadatta, his cousin who I mentioned, he tried to take over the Sangha to cause a schism, take away his disciples. Even then, He tries to hurt the Buddha and he didn't even tries to kill the Buddha. All these things he tries to do. But the most the Buddha would do was to warn people, don't listen to Devadatta. He's off the rails. He's not part of our Sangha anymore. That's about all he would do. Just to warn people so they wouldn't follow him. But he didn't retaliate or disparage him in any other way. The Buddha's two chief disciples both died before he did. And they were his dearest disciples. There was a sadness for him. He says, oh, the assembly seems empty without Moggallana and Shariputra. But I know, actually, and he would say, I know it's not empty. Actually, they're fine. Everything is okay. But he had that sadness. feels empty without them. But I know it's actually not true. He wasn't indifferent or unfeeling. Enlightenment didn't take away his feelings, you know. He was kind. And he must have loved people to help them, but not in a kind of clummy way. Even if people were rude or unkind, he always tried to help them. Kindness throughout his life, you know, sometimes he'd be stern and, you know, not pleased with what somebody was doing, but there was an underlying compassion... Trying to help people to let go of their difficulties and foolishnesses. Well, he'd get sick sometimes. You know, he was a human being. He would get sick, he got old and wrinkled, he had a bad back, Ananda would massage him. And he got food poisoning at the age of 80 and finally died. So he was human like the rest of us, he wasn't a god. He wasn't, you know, all these myths, or not myths, I don't know, legends about the Buddha's birth and about dragons pouring forth water and who knows, maybe they did, maybe they did. Queen Maya giving birth to him from her right side. I have a bit of trouble with that one, but what do I know? And if it helps people to believe legends, it's fine, it's not a problem. The Buddha was born, he lived his life, he taught the Dharma, we have it today. And he was a human being. I think that's more important to us than this is legend true or not. You know, we don't have to worry. And as I said, through all of this, the Buddha kept true to his purpose with faith. He would always practice kindness. He thought of Kunda, the man who had given him his last meal that poisoned him off, and. He realized that poor old Kanda would probably feel terrible. Can you imagine being the person who gives the Buddha his last meal and then he dies, you know? So he said Kanda, he said, Give a message, tell Kanda, don't feel bad. Because to provide the last meal for a Buddha was a blessing. He says, There's two kinds of alms food that have equal benefits, far greater than any other. The alms food after eating which a Buddha becomes enlightened. And the alms food after eating which a Buddha finally attains nirvana. He dies, you know. So Kanda has done a deed of great merit, so he must not reproach himself or feel any remorse. There's such a kindness to think of this poor man (laughs) who must have felt really bad, you know. And we might wonder, why is there great merit and providing a Buddha with his last meal before he dies. I am giving a Buddha, a Buddha a meal before he becomes enlightened, well, that makes sense, but before he dies, you know? Because it enables that next step. The Buddha, it was time for him to go. He knew he was going to die soon. He was making preparations, preparing his disciples for this to happen, you know? So it was, t- it was time to go. It was time for him to die. Although it was painful. Maybe Kanda helped him on his way to take that next step. These three great events in the Buddha's life, his birth, his enlightenment, his death, or Parinirvana. And these are what we commemorate today. So it's fitting that we commemorate the Buddha's death as well as his birth and enlightenment. They're all necessary. You have to have the the hard times as well as the joyful times, you know. You can't have life without death, you can't have enlightenment without a lot of work. You still have to deal with difficulties no matter who you are. It's just the way it is. That's how it is in our world. We're not living in a devil world. We're living in this human realm where we have difficulties, problems, we make mistakes, we get sick, you know, and we die. The opposites of life and death, health and sickness, gain and loss, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, all those opposites. They are what drive us to find the true refuge that goes beyond all these things. The true refuge which is beyond life and death, health and sickness, joy and sorrow and all that. They drive us to that. If everything was nice all the time, you wouldn't bother. If everything was awful all the time, you wouldn't just despair, wouldn't try. But to have all those things, sometimes it's joy, sometimes it's sorrow. Sometimes we're healthy, sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're young, sometimes we're old. Sometimes we're living, sometimes we're dying and to find that which does not die, which does not change, beyond all these things, Buddha nature, the unborn. We live and die within impermanence, within these opposites, and we try to do our best to take refuge in that which lies beyond them. Gasho, right and left, they come together in one thing. Just as the Buddha did, we can do it too. That's what we celebrate today. Thank you.